welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Happy Teacher Appreciation Week. I'll have more on that in a moment. I hope everyone had a great weekend. Uh, there is just something about the calendar turning to May, isn't there? It, uh, it hits different, as the kids say. <laughs> uh, for some of you, summer vacation begins at the end of this month. Try not to let it show too much on your faces. You know what? Forget that. Let it show. I, for one, am so sick of teachers being shamed for looking forward to their vacation time. Seems to be the only profession in our society not allowed to look forward to time off. So you know what? If there's ever a time where teachers can look forward to vacation time, it was last spring and this spring. So as far as I'm concerned, let it rip. Thanks for listening in again this week, of course, and as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Your listening and following the podcast is really appreciated, and if you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to spread the word on social media or with your colleagues. Today, my guest is Natalie Vardabasso. She is the Instructional Design Lead at Calgary Academy, and she's also the host of the EduCrush podcast, so we dig into both her work and her podcast. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to talk about the importance of knowing your assessment purpose and why it really does set everything else up throughout the assessment cycle. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. Natalie Vardabasso is coming up. But first, don't at me, and you won't, because this is Teacher Appreciation Week. Now, why do we need Teacher Appreciation Week or appreciations in general? Why do we need to recognize the good qualities of someone or a group of people? Because too often, those good qualities are taken for granted. Now, my friend Andrea, yes, the same Andrea who nudged me to start this podcast last July, is the appreciator of our tight circle of friends. At many of our social gatherings, she is the one to initiate the appreciations, especially on someone's birthday or a special occasion. We all spend a few moments telling one individual, you know, how much we appreciate them. We don't do it all the time, but it happens often enough. And yes, many of us groan performatively, but honestly, it's a wonderful thing to do because it lets that person know how much they matter to you, that you, you see them, and that you don't take them for granted. Honestly, I love the fact that Andrea pushes us to do that. It makes me feel a lot closer to my friends. But, of course, do it early in the evening, because uh, <laughs> after, after too many beverages, things can get a little loose, as, if you know what I mean. But seriously... I, I actually think it builds a stronger connection amongst a group of friends or, you know, colleagues or whatever the circle might be. Appreciations are needed because it's all too easy to take people for granted or groups of people for granted. Yes, you know, some special occasions can be easily viewed cynically as, you know, forced or commercial or cliche, but it's because we're all so busy that we need to take the time and we need those reminders. Look, if, if you're telling your significant other, for example, how special they are 364 days a year, then go ahead and scoff at Valentine's Day. 
You know, you can be that person that says, I don't need society to tell me, blah, blah, blah. Like, I get it. And you're probably right. But unless you're one of those 364 days a year people, then just buy the card. Buy the flowers, buy the chocolate, buy the dinner, do something special. Just go with it. It will, no matter how cliche or forced, it will still make that person feel special. Should society appreciate teachers every single day? Absolutely. Does it? Not even close. Teachers might be the most taken-for-granted profession in our society. I have no data to back that up, and of course, many outside the profession would likely dismiss that claim as self-indulgent, but we know if anything can be blamed on the schools, and teachers specifically, you know it will be, because teachers and schools are, are easy targets. There is this assertion by many in society that the schools are failing our kids. That assertion is, you know, how do we defend that? How do we refute that? How are we supposed to disprove that? Should we take a control group of five-year-olds and not educate them for 13 years and then compare the results at the end to prove the system didn't fail? Well, there is a lot of work to be done in our school system, and I'm not suggesting it's anything close to perfect. We know that there's much to be done around building more culturally responsive and inclusive experiences for all learners. This is the time to appreciate the people who are truly the unsung heroes of our society. I, for one, wish we didn't need Teacher Appreciation Week. My wish would be teachers felt appreciated and honored every day. But they're not. So it's important to take the time to show our appreciation for those who've committed their careers to serving and educating other people's children. Now, I am, at my core, a teacher. Always have been, always will be. Now, that said, I haven't been a classroom teacher for a while now. So, as you can hear, I sort of naturally bounce back and forth between we and teachers. So it's just something I have to try to navigate as I sort of talk about this appreciation because I feel like I'm inside, but I'm not a classroom teacher. And it's just something I have to sort of, you'll, you'll hear me bounce back and forth. I also think it has to be said that so much of the dismissiveness teachers feel from portions of society has a lot to do with the fact that teaching is a predominantly female profession. 68% of all teachers in Canada are women. It's 84% at the elementary level and 59% at the secondary level. In the United States, 76% of all teachers are female. It's 89% at the elementary level and 64% at the secondary level. So, are we really just all going to sit here and pretend that society's patronizing attitude toward teachers is coincidental? That it has nothing to do with the fact that the profession itself is disproportionately female? Yeah, sure. Tell me another fairy tale. Now, you've all heard the expression, those who can do, those who can't teach. What a ridiculous, incredibly dismissive and disrespectful expression that is. As though teaching someone to read, to write, to think, to create, to investigate is just automatic. If it's so easy, come and teach for one day. You know, just one, just one day, come and teach for a whole day. I'll set the over-under at 90 minutes before you start calling for your mommy. Now here's the deal. Teaching is a tough job. 
But there are a lot of tough jobs in our society. But in some ways, the fact that every single person in society has first-hand knowledge of what it's like to go to school is part of the problem. And teachers don't even really claim that it's the toughest job. Being a lawyer is tough. Being an accountant is tough. Being an entrepreneur is tough. But so is being a teacher. Lawyers bring work home. Entrepreneurs work sometimes around the clock. Accountants work long hours. So do teachers. Teaching is a profession like any other profession. And it deserves to be seen on par with every other profession in society. But you see, most people associate school with being a child or being a teenager. So now that they're adults and, you know, more serious and now immersed into their professions, they look at school as something from the past, something when they were less serious, something from their formative years, right? So teachers get lumped into that. But here's the thing. Teachers don't go to school. They, like everyone else, every other adult, they go to work. Even in their own relationships, Teachers will be asked, how was school today? Again, teachers don't go to school. They, like every other adult in society, they go to work. The majority of that work is in front of students, yes, but you can't teach and plan simultaneously. There is a lot that goes on in absence of students. And I'm not even going to dignify the ignorance of the, oh, you only work until three o'clock and you get your summers off comment. If that's what you think it is, then quit your job and come ride the gravy train. Again, you will be thoroughly disappointed that the explanatory fiction you created in your mind is nothing close to reality. What has happened over the past 12 to 14 months is unlike anything any of us have ever seen in our lifetimes. What teachers did in the spring of 2020, the almost immediate pivot to remote learning, was nothing short of heroic. And all that the last 12 to 14 months has brought continues to be heroic. I, for one, continue to be inspired not only by teachers' collective commitment to ensuring their students have meaningful learning experiences, despite the stress and anxiety that COVID has brought everyone, but teachers' collective commitment to their professional learning and growth. I mean, I've seen this firsthand with the number of online virtual workshops and presentations I've conducted. And I know that many of my colleagues have experienced similar things. So I want to say to teachers, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for who you are and, and what you do. Teaching is not what teachers do. It's who we are. And who you have been, particularly now during these truly unprecedented times, is nothing short of inspiring. I know that as this pandemic unfolded over the past year, that there seemed to be this change in the collective consciousness of how society viewed teachers in schools. It seems so many parents and others have already forgotten how challenging learning from home was last year and had, by the end of 2020, regressed back into the negative tropes about teachers in the school system. But remember, teachers, the vocal minority doesn't represent how the masses feel. Teachers are a pillar of society, since the state of any society can be measured, at least partially, by the strength of its education system. And for any non-educators out there listening, now is the time to reach out to your child's teacher, or maybe even a teacher from your past, and thank them. 
it's the least we can all do as teachers continue to be unbelievably agile in managing the increased expectations and the relentless pressure to be perfect. So teachers, block out the noise, stay strong, and continue to do what you've always done. And that is, without much fanfare, without much notoriety or headlines, continue to inspire your students. They are tomorrow's leaders, tomorrow's inventors, tomorrow's entrepreneurs, tomorrow's professionals. Inspire your students to find their passions and to find themselves. To help them understand who they are and how they will leave their mark on the world. Continue to believe in them until they believe in themselves and their limitless potential to become everything they've ever dreamed of. Joining me today for the interview is Natalie Vardabasso. Natalie is currently the Assessment Instructional Design Lead at Calgary Academy, which is a special education private school in Calgary, Alberta. For the first six years of her career, Natalie was a middle school humanities teacher. Natalie is also the host of the EduCrush podcast, which explores the ways that we can all reimagine education with, as she always says, passion and purpose. And we are definitely going to talk about that podcast today. Uh, I connected with Natalie, I think about a year ago through uh, one of our All Things Assessment chats on Twitter. And uh, I've had the pleasure of working with Natalie and with her colleagues at Calgary Academy on some of their assessment work. So I'm excited to talk to Natalie today on the podcast. So Natalie, welcome to the Tom Shimmer podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. I have to say I'm completely honored, truly. I mean, the lineup, lineup that you've had on this podcast is most impressive. Thomas Guskey. Uh, Katie Novak, Katie White, Nicole Dimmich. I mean, to even be included in this lineup, I'm kind of uh, starstruck right now. So thank you for having me. Wow. Yeah, happy to have you. Um, we've finally completed the uh, the pod swap because I've been a guest <laughs> yeah. on your podcast yeah. and now you're here on mine. So circle complete. And, uh, Full circle you know, moment. Natalie, in include yourself in, uh, in, in impressive guests because I think uh, what you've done and what you've accomplished and what you're all about in your career is, is most impressive. And, and that's why I have you here. But I want to begin today with you and then we'll talk about the podcast and we'll talk about some of your ideas about reimagining education and all of that. But I want to talk about you, the, the, the story of Natalie. So why teaching? Was, was education always a career focus or, you know, in high school and all that, or, or at some point did you discover a passion for education after you graduated from high school and in college? <laughs> it was definitely never a passion in high school. Uh, okay. That is for sure. Mm -hmm. I actually going back all the way to my K to 12 experience. My dad was my principal mm -hmm. in high school. Oh, wow. And with the last name, like Vardabasso, <laughs> you can't exactly hide. It's not like, oh, Smith. And I'm like, oh, it's a different Smith. Sorry, we're not related. So mm -hmm. I felt like very early on because he was quite this prolific educator and leader. People mm -hmm. were pressuring me to be like, oh, you're for sure going to be a teacher just like your dad. You'll be so good <laughs> at it. And I have a very stubborn part to my personality. So very early on, I was like, I will never be a teacher. <laughs> that is not going to happen over my dead body. I am going to be a pop star. I was like, what is the most polar opposite thing I could do? So I went that route for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I went to musical theater school, did performing arts in Vancouver, and then realized, you know, can't really do a whole lot with that. And so I went back to school and got a literature degree, still didn't really know what to do with that. So <laughs> at that point, I went to the uh, promised land of Alberta to make, you know, the money and pay off student loans and was just bartending and serving. And I really had no idea. <laughs> who I was or what I wanted to do with my life at that point. I was about 24 yeah. and my dad just threw like, you know, you like football. So this is for you a hail Mary 
trying to make <laughs> He threw a Hail Mary and was like, you know what? I'm at the end of my career. He was on a curriculum advisory panel. He met this incredible professor from UBC who was trying a really innovative approach to teacher education. And it was a small little pilot course that they're going to run out of UBCO, uh, University of British Columbia, the Okanagan campus. And right. he's like, please try it. Just go. I just feel like you're going to love it. You're going to meet this guy. He has a performing arts background. You're so similar. And so I told him, I had this caveat. I was like, I'll give it one month. I'll move home. And if I give it a month and I absolutely hate it, I, that's it. And we're just going to put that to bed and never talk about teaching ever again. And, you know, as the story goes, like one weekend, I just was like, this is it. This is where I'm meant to be. I love this yeah. so much. I didn't realize what education was supposed to be. I was just basing my, I don't want to teach on what I had experienced. And I was completely lit up by the idea of mm -hmm. going into the space as a change agent. And that's yeah. what I've been ever since. It's, uh, it's always interesting when, you know, growing up, how we, uh, we tend to look at what our parents are doing and, and almost, almost automatically kind of say, no, nope, not doing that. Yeah. I'm going to do the opposite. <laughs> and part of that is for forging your own identity, right? right? And, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And That's nicer than way. saying I'm stubborn. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, I think part of, part of growing up is, uh, figuring out who you are in absence of the shadow of your parents and, and mm -hmm. family and all of that. So, so I want to ask you about your experience, um, as yeah. a, as a teacher so far, um, you know, you're still relatively early into your career, but, mm -hmm. and this is going to be a two-part question because I'm really interested in thinking about your perspective. So first, has there been anything about, and maybe there's been more than one thing, but has there been anything about your experience as a teacher so far that has maybe exceeded your expectations that you are surprised mm -hmm. that it was, that it turned out to be the way it did? Um, I think my eyes were pretty wide open going into it because I grew up with a dad who was an educator. So mm -hmm. I knew that it would be insane hours. I knew I'd be taking work home with me. I knew it would kind of dominate my life. Right. But what I didn't expect was the feeling you get when you have either a parent or a student who is just overwhelmed with gratitude um, by something that you don't even realize how profound it was at the time. Like, you know, I work in a special education context. So there is nothing quite like the moment of sitting in a parent-teacher interview and the parent across the table, you're showing them evidence of something their kid wrote and their kid's mm -hmm. never written anything before. They could hardly get two words on the paper and they're crying and they're thanking you. Like there, that is something I think is so truly unique to education. I can't imagine there's something similar in different fields that fulfillment you get from that is, right. it makes it the greatest job in the world, that yeah. alone. Or, you know, a student coming back like four or five years later, and it was a kid that <laughs> tried you in middle school. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm you know, you really had to struggle to get them to a place where they were able to just regulate and get through class. And, you know, they're graduating now and they're in grade 12 and they're coming to talk to you about what universities they're looking at. And it's such an amazing feeling. Like I'm yeah. not a parent, but I can imagine that's as the closest it would be is like watching your kid grow yeah. up. Right. Yeah. Um, in terms of exceeds, I mean, also the, uh, the people, I, like yeah. I knew that I'd, I'd like teachers. I mean, family, friends were all teachers, but right. I really didn't realize how amazing educators are until you start working beside them and you're stumbling and you're having a tough day and they are always there to pick you up and mm. it really is a sense of camaraderie that mm. I could never leave um and then the second part of the question right is what what has well so the the second the second part would be has there been anything that's kind of fallen short or disappointed you or or unexpectedly you thought it was going to be you know again it may not be terrible but it's just something that uh, didn't fulfill your expectations yeah <laughs> um I think I would say how pervasive the status quo is 
mm. has been a little bit disappointing. Um, obviously I went through what I knew was a bit of a different program and he was very clear, like I'm sending you out with this knowledge and this mindset, but mm -hmm. he would ask constantly, how are you going to manage when that's not the reality? How are you going to manage? And I was like, of course, that's the reality. Everybody, we all feel the same. We're all talking about it in this program. Right. And then you get out into the real world mm -hmm. and the status quo isn't like something where people just don't want to change. And they're like, no, I want to use my textbook and my tests. And this is the way it should be. Like I said, yeah. people are, teachers are incredible people. It's mm -hmm. pervasive because just the workload is so high. There are so many complex demands on teachers. It, it's almost like the sad pervasiveness where everybody wants yeah. it. Everybody's talking about the education they wish they could be giving their students, but the reality of the job is making it impossible to get there. And I think that's been a really sad thing to feel. It <laughs> to is experience. A... Oh, I was yeah. even someone who went into the classroom and I had these very blue yeah. sky ideas. And before you know it, I'm like printing out my multiple choice scantrons and getting that textbook out. You're like, what just happened? Yeah. But sometimes that's yeah. just the reality. You're in a new grade, you're in a new content yeah. area and you're drowning. Not yeah. that. <laughs> it's it's survival mode. And and I think sometimes, you know, we really we really do stick it to new teachers when they come into the profession and they get kind of the the worst course load or the the mm -hmm. you know what I mean the, as far as the assignments are concerned. And I think that sometimes those first five years are are so overwhelming that when you can finally settle into a routine and you finally have your plan and you finally have your resources. You, you want to stick with that for a while because things have been so unsettled in the early. So I, I you know, I don't know what yeah. the exact answer is, but I think somewhere early in the career, we, we have to collectively do a better job of, of helping teachers transition into the profession mm -hmm. rather than saying, you know, welcome to teaching. You get the worst sort of course load of all, all of the teachers or the, I don't mean worst as in subject, but you get, you know, five preps that you have to handle and mm -hmm. you've got to do this and you're teaching from a cart. You know, I was talking to, <laughs> yeah. I, I talked to, I talked with LaVonna Roth a couple of weeks ago and she said the same thing when she started her career, she, she didn't even have a classroom. She was on a cart going up the elevator yeah. and trying to get to, so I think we do this to, to teachers early in their career for sure. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's tough to settle in. And it's funny how also, I think sometimes we, we tend to point the finger and say, you know, if it wasn't for them, I think we could be more progressive when a lot of change can exactly. happen internally. Right. So, you know, something I, I have come to know about you and you've mentioned this already is your mm -hmm. um, theater and performing arts background. Mm -hmm. And um, I want, I want you to first tell us a, a little bit about your background. I have a follow-up question to this, okay. but tell us a little bit about a little more about um, the backstory of uh, Nat uh, becoming a pop star or, or being a, <laughs> a performing artist. Let's talk uh, about that for a moment. And then I'll follow uh, up with the question. Nat, the pop star. I had there that whole dream planned out. Let me tell you, I was going to have a clothing line called Envy get it? Oh, my, okay. my initials. Yeah. It's yeah, a whole yeah. dream. Anyways, okay. but that my performing arts love really started. Like I can't even name the age that it started. Just like my earliest memories were always me in front of my parents or their friends with like something resembling a microphone, probably like a hairbrush mm -hmm. or whatever performing mm -hmm. or like gathering all the neighborhood kids to put together dances to songs that we would force our parents to watch. I mm -hmm. had the entire Spice Girls <laughs> tour VHS memorized. And every time my yeah. parents had a dinner party, I'd be like to the living room, right? Like, Here we go. <laughs> so it's just something that's a part of my soul, I think. But anyway, so I followed like a pretty normal trajectory for a lot of kids. I like started in dance, ballet, and then it expanded to like jazz and tap and lots of other forms. And then by about junior high, I was doing um, external training with like more classical acting and Shakespeare. And by high school, I was a full-blown theater nerd 
cried. <laughs> I found I, it definitely was my community. That was the first time I had a sense of community. And again, broke, broke my dad's heart many times throughout my life, I think, because um, he's an athlete. My mom's an athlete. They had me on sports teams and I'd constantly have to miss practices and stuff because I'd be in shows and dances and plays and eventually yeah. had to quit those altogether to make the jump. So by the time I graduated, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was working at a grocery store. <laughs> I was actually pretty content. I was like, oh, this is really peaceful. Like, beep. Yeah, um, I could just daydream. And so I decided to join a studio that had just opened up in Vernon, BC, where I'm from. It was a couple that had met at Juilliard in New York and they moved to Vernon of all places. Mm -hmm. And they started an opera and musical theater studio. So I really started to amp up the voice and the more triple threat type of performance. Mm -hmm. And that kind of parlayed itself into, I got a scholarship from the Vernon, Vernon Performing Arts Center to go pursue this outside of Vernon, my little bubble. And I got uh, accepted to the Capilano Musical Theater Program and did mm -hmm. that for a few years. I actually didn't finish the diploma. I dropped out because I got to a point where I realized I loved performing so much and the depth that you get to at a university level program is pretty exciting. But I felt more lost <laughs> than mm -hmm. I ever was when before it even started. And I always thought that was such a key part of who I was, but I quickly realized that reading scripts and trying to step inside other people and focusing on that a lot, I hadn't taken any time to actually figure out who I was, what I valued, what I wanted, what I cared about. Was there a mm. cause I wanted to chant? Like I had no idea. Yeah. And so that caused me to leave. And now wow. I just dance for fun. More or less. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. So yeah. here's my follow-up to, um, Here's my, it's, it's interesting because, you know, as, as someone who was an athlete, uh, I tried to get my daughter to, uh, to play sports and it didn't take, and she went the <laughs> dance, she went down the road of dance. And, Aww. uh, I, you know, I learned to love it. I learned to appreciate dance, uh, athletically, you know, I, when I, yeah. when I w would watch dance, I, I came to watch it through the lens of an athlete. And I realized <laughs> you, you start to realize how, how, uh, athletic, dance can be and how absolutely you know, how, i'm so yeah, glad you yeah. appreciate that thank you no i i learned to uh i've watched a lot of a lot of dance uh you know uh, uh fifth position jete padasha i know i know Ooh, all of these okay things. Look at know. You. Come through. all right so here's my question okay uh, how do you d d does your theater background play a role in you know you as an educator does do you draw upon that background at times in your in your role now or in the past and and if you do how does what role does it play um first of all 100 it impacts mm -hmm. everything as an educator i i firmly believe that no education is ever wasted so though it might have seems like i went on this meandering path i think i'm talking about my dad a lot in this interview <laughs> i feel like he explains that a lot like i lost myself for a while and then you know i found my way back to academics but i think it all informed everything that is who mm -hmm. I am. So there's a few key lessons that I feel like I could touch on here. The first in the theater space, you never begin the work until trust is established. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even someone you're not, you don't have a theater background. You've probably heard the like jokes about trust falls and like all the dorky things that, you know <laughs> theater kids would do, but it's very intentional because you're putting yourself in this high risk situation of a public performance. And you have to have ultimate trust that the person beside you has done the work and memorized their lines and knows their cues. And you're not going to suddenly be stuck on stage with them, not knowing what to do. And you have to like scramble in front of all these people and figure it out. So trust is so important. And so you build it. And then throughout every production I've ever been a part of, you need to rebuild it when it's broken. Like I've had many a, a circle time after a performance where things are falling apart. There's a fight within the cast, you know, a breakup happened or something. And you have to quickly work through that as a group so that you can keep moving forward because it is hard to pull up a performance. And so I bring that into everything I do in the classroom and how to build a community and how to take community building very seriously. Mm -hmm. um, 
The second thing I'd say is a deeper understanding of behavior and understanding why people do the things they do. Because when you get to the higher levels of theater training, so when I got to university and you get into understanding different methods, like you know the Stanislavski method, and mm-hmm. it really becomes about motivation. Every single thing a character does in a story, in a show, in a movie, they're doing it for a good reason. You've actually talked about this on your podcast, the introspection bias. Right. So I find, sometimes find I'll hear a colleague talking about, oh, this kid's doing this to be annoying. They're just doing it to get attention. And I'm like, no, there's usually something more positive that they're trying to get out of that situation. You're mm-hmm. judging their actions based on your perception, but right. there's actually a motivation there. And I find I can get there a little bit quicker with kids. Um, improv. Oh, improv is a big one. So yeah. yes. And is the cardinal rule of improv, right? If you're on stage with someone and you don't have a plan and you're making it up as you go, you never want to block an idea based off your own discomfort. You're like, oh, I don't like that. That's stupid. I don't want to go in that direction. And mm-hmm. I found that's made me someone who can amplify creativity and innovation, not only in my classroom, but it's almost even more important as I've moved out of the classroom and I'm working with colleagues mm-hmm. um, because it's a risk to try something new in your context. And so if someone yeah. comes to you with an idea and is like, I think I want to try this. Even if your brain's like, oh, I've already been down that path that doesn't work. You always mm-hmm. yes and it and you just advance that offer and you go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the last one I would say is uh, just the interplay between the technical and the emotional. And that actually comes from more of my dance and singing background. It was the hardest thing I had to overcome as I got to the higher levels was I couldn't get to the emotional place. I was a, my technique as a singer is especially like more classical, like opera was like perfect. Like it was at the point that I was never off pitch. I would have every word down, my phrasing, my breathing, it was all there, but it sounded mechanical. And so I was constantly looking for that deeper attachment to what I was doing. And I find that is the core of what makes it's like the je ne sais quoi I think of my practice and I see it in other people too it's just this feeling you have as a teacher in your gut that you're like I'm doing all the right techniques as a teacher but they're not here with me and I'm not here and we're not this isn't it's not real yet and I always am looking for that feeling yeah that's that's really that last part there really resonates with me for sure Mm -hmm. just about how teaching can be such a technical and such a clinical exercise but but there is always that emotional side to i mean we've talked before Mm -hmm. about the emotional side of assessment the emotional side of the experience for learners the emotional side for the teacher as well and i think being able to in in some respects i suppose be comfortable with that and know that that is a necessary part of the entire sort of holistic experience as yeah. a teacher as a learner i think that's that's really interesting you, yeah. you drew some really interesting connections there for sure i can yeah I can it, it reminds see. me you, do you know that well known quote by parker palmer i feel like everyone read it in their ed program like technique is what teachers use until the real teacher arrives like there's mm. a piece of that right it's that little something extra that you just you know it when you see it but it's hard to teach a new teacher right yeah no absolutely um you know, I feel like I feel like there's a lot more to explore there with the uh, with the theater background for sure. But I want yeah. to pivot now to the podcast because uh, one of the many reasons, uh, Natalie, I wanted to have you on my podcast is to talk about your podcast. And listeners will make sure that you you know how to sort of follow and 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 uh, and listen in on the Edgy Crush uh, podcast because I I really enjoy it. And you've had some great episodes and and certainly 
uh, want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that. So you're, of course, the host of that podcast. And one of the things that, you know, I love about hosting a podcast is having the opportunity to speak with and to learn from uh, so many, you know, interesting guests. And you listed a few that I've had on uh, at the beginning. So I'm wondering what some of your key takeaways are from your podcast so far. And uh, maybe from whom did you learn those lessons? You know, like, what mm -hmm. are some of the things that you've taken away so far uh, in the episodes you've had? Oh, gosh, I've learned so much. <laughs> I keep telling people who ask something similar to this question, you know, like this is the best professional learning I could ever advocate for. If you want to just amplify your curiosity and your depth of understanding, start a podcast. And also it gives mm -hmm. you a reason to like talk to that person who's doing a keynote that you could potentially pay $400 for, or you could book them on your podcast and it's free <laughs> promo pro tip. Um, but if I had to try and sum it up, which is hard to do, I think I'll go with, I'll use the themes that the podcast hits on. And that's how I've been organizing the content on the website. So that might be helpful. So the big themes are innovation, uh, equity, creativity, and change. And those are kind of woven throughout every single episode. So if we start with innovation, I've had a lot of episodes directly focused on it and some that just kind of happened to touch on it. But what I've been saying recently is that I've learned innovation happens in the space between people. And that's very different than where I started, which innovation was like a thing. It was like an epiphany. It was like, you know, someone going off into a room and emerging with an iPhone and being like, aha, I did it. <laughs> Behold my innovation. And right. that is not the case at all. And that comes, I've featured a lot of projects. So because I'm currently in a school setting, whenever I see a couple of colleagues that have tried a new project or a new approach in their classroom, I, and everyone's raving about it. I ask if they want to talk about it and debrief, because then I can share it with my community and the wider community. And Right. The reason they tried it is almost always that they had another person beside them and they felt their confidence was bolstered to give it a try because they had like a co-conspirator with them to mm. struggle through it. Um, and then also like Sarah Midenick, she's the CEO of the Downey Wenjack Fund. She talked about how their legacy schools program, which is to try and advance the goals of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Canada, is built on a networked change idea. The mm. idea that you build people into a network and then they feel they're connected to something, they have inspiration and a place to go if they have challenges, they're more likely to give it a try. And Jim Gray was another uh, person I interviewed. He's almost 90 years old, one of the most inspiring humans wow. I've ever met. He is like the founder of the oil sands here in Alberta. He's very, very financially successful, but very humble. And looking back on his whole life, it's he just dis distills his wisdom down to the most simple but elegant parts. And when I asked him what innovation means, he talked more about confidence. And it's funny because confidence I find comes from people working together. And he said, confidence is fragile and it's the most precious commodity that we have. And we have the ability to completely shatter someone's confidence. So it kind of goes back to the improv thing I was saying, where if someone comes forward with an idea and is like, I'd love to try this, that is where innovation happens in that moment right there. Because if you're someone who has a position of authority and you say, yeah, that's, you know, we've tried that. That's not going to work. That person's probably not going to come forward again with an idea. So it's like that interplay between people I'm finding is so, so, so crucial to innovation actually happening. Yeah. That's a big takeaway. Um, from the equity standpoint, that has been like when we, when I launched the podcast, we were right in the heart of, you know, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. We were all mm -hmm. at home in quarantine. We had just watched the murder of George Floyd and all the protests, it was very heavily weighing on my mind. So I feel like it's right. just naturally come up in a lot of the interviews. And I'm finding that equity demands dialogue. 
-hmm. And we're not very good at dialogue (laughs) as a society. Mm -hmm. So if you want equity, I feel like that is the first thing to focus on. And the first interview that got me thinking about that was uh, Pat Worthington. He's an HR specialist. And I talked about how do you manage conflict? Because that's my biggest fear in the workplace. I don't know how to address it. I tend to always make things worse. I have a horrible call out game. I get triggered. (laughs) and I come in hot. So he talked a lot about in those moments, it's so important to step back because we are very likely just firming down into our own assumptions and our own perspective. And we're not understanding the other person's like motivation and where they're coming from and what their intentions are. And it's so important to understand in those moments of conflict. And then talking to Jesse Thistle, the author of From the Ashes, uh, which is a memoir about his, he's uh, Métis, And it's about his time that he spent living on the streets, addicted to drugs and how he worked himself out of that and is now a professor at York University. And he talked eloquently about everyone has a story and it's our job as humans to get it right and to understand what that person's story is and to listen and to ask questions. And because we're now having this better understanding of equity, I realized that we have such little understanding of these other lived experiences if you're not a part of that privilege bubble. So dialogue becoming yeah. really important. To yeah. Me. So many listeners you can hear that. I mean, just, you have had just some wonderful guests on and some mm-hmm. great deep conversations. So I've, I've again, thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on mm-hmm. uh, is to just, you know, to talk about some of the experiences you've had the tagline or, mm-hmm. you know, the vision for the, the podcast is uh, where we reimagine education, right? We crush it together with passion and purpose. So let me ask you this, given all of those inspiring guests that you've had mm-hmm. um, and many of the key takeaways, if if you were asked to put it all together and actually think about it this way, how would you re- reimagine education right now? Well, how long do you have, Tom? Because Well, <laughs> I'll have, we can have the extended version of the podcast <laughs> okay. at some point. Uh, first of all, every time I hear that phrase now, it's become almost like you know, when someone says a word again and again and again, and it almost starts to lose meaning. I think there's a word for that. I feel like that's like the phrase reimagine education right now. I'm hearing mm-hmm. it everywhere. And it almost seems like it is just a throwaway now. It's like, oh, reimagine. You just think of new ways. Yay, check. Mm. You've reimagined education. Right. I almost wish I had chosen the phrase like rebuild. Like it's a little bit more okay. active. It's a little bit more like doing mm-hmm. something. Um, but if I had so to choose- let's, like, let's rebuild. Let's rebuild, rebuild. Right now. If we were to rebuild education. <laughs> okay, well, the, re- the reimagining part, because yes, you do need a vision. And like the vision that I've landed on, I don't think is revolutionary. I think a lot of people are there too, where we have to shift from this industrial, like mechanical system that we've inherited from the past to more of an evolutionary biological ecosystem that is more iterative and ever evolving. Mm-hmm. And that seems, it's like, yeah, sure. That seems legit. We need to do that. Um, but I think that that means challenging things that we've never really challenged. Like we have to really let go of the need for standardization. We have to really challenge, uh, allegiances to power and we have to accept the beginnings of like a true education. And I'm an etymology nerd. So the root word of education is educare comes from the Latin meaning to draw out, to lead out. And I think education is always, it's still very something that is done to people that go through school, as opposed to something people create for themselves. And so that's the high level, like that's the reimagining, but then it's like, I could stop there and it's like, cool, we really changed the game on that one. Like we need more creativity. We need less standardization. Wow. What a game changer, but how we actually do it is where I think it gets interesting. And I've been gathering, like, I can't like act like these are all my own ideas. I feel like I've just been cobbling bits and pieces together, um, over the past year. And one of the biggest things I think we need to challenge right out of the gate is professional learning. 
Mm. I think it's really hard for teachers to go into a classroom and create something different if they've never experienced something different. And by that, I mean, we know learning is amplified when people have choice and voice and they can go after it and they can choose something and they can work with others. I mean, just based off what I learned, you know, from my podcast, people are more likely to take risks, to be more confident if they have another person beside them and they're choosing to do something. So professional learning was completely unfettered where every teacher had the opportunity to try something different. The goal is okay this year, just try something different and find someone to do it with. That's it. I have complete trust from all the teachers I know and I've worked with that they would take the reins on that and they will go so far beyond what any administrator or leader thought was possible. But I think there's a lack of trust that still exists and a bit of fear. And so that the power of needing to control that experience is still there. So I think that's step one. Um, and then I think we have to change what is variable in school. So right now the, the what, is the constant. This is the curriculum. This is what you have to learn. So if we flipped that and said, okay, that's variable, people are going to have way more choice and voice over what they learn, but then the constant becomes how we learn. Everything unravels at that point then. Right. So I know we've talked about the competencies a lot. People have heard that before, but what I think is unique about the competencies is they're not often talked about like as they need to exist in their context. So it'd be really cool if every school, and this is the purpose part of like passion and purpose had a chance to take an entire year and to say, what is your portrait of a learner? Who is the learner that you are creating? Forget about your curriculum, just put it over there. <laughs> Who is the learner? And you only get like four to six overarching, you know, learning goals that you're working towards and mm -hmm. that this student should demonstrate by the time they graduate from your school. They clarify what those are and then everything starts to get based around those. And then this is where I'd like, it, I'm really starting to like, I'll go off. Uh, no more courses. Yeah. I think we get rid of courses altogether and we move to a truly project-based approach where teachers, if they're in this really fluid professional learning model, can then say, okay, this term, uh, me and this guy, he's a PE teacher, I'm a math teacher, but we have this crazy idea. We just saw this thing in the news. We're really fired up about it. We think we could do a really cool project where students are an analyzing the budget of something that relates to PE. I can't think of it mm -hmm. off the top of my head. I should have picked yeah. contents. I actually <laughs> understand it better. It's all good. Um, so the students then can see all these different projects that different teams of teachers have organized around and say, okay, I want to do that project this term. Off they go. And maybe it's fluid between grades. So this happens at a junior high and a high school level. Mm -hmm. And what is measured and then what is reported is those learning attributes that the school has identified as most important to them. Yeah. And they're, then the whole scheduling would start to fall apart. So you might have really fluid times for how that project needs to ebb and flow throughout the term, but there might be fixed mm -hmm. times. Like the question I can't quite answer yet is what would be those fixed blocks that just have to happen that are so right. integral to learning and mentor time. I just had an amazing conversation with a group of uh, grade 12 students last week about assessment. And they said having a mentor was a game changer for their own self-assessment because mm -hmm. when they trusted that person and that person said, tell me about how your learning is going, where do you want to grow? What's your goals? If they didn't trust them, they wouldn't tell yeah. them because they were embarrassed and they didn't want to look yeah. stupid. And, but they said, if you could choose that mentor and it's a teacher, maybe you had them in grade mm -hmm. eight and you're now in grade 12, but yeah. you still have such a tight connection. It would really amplify learning. Yeah. Um, and I also think something that should be fixed is, and this goes back to my theater world, uh, like a community block, for lack of a better word, where people that are maybe working on that project together, or maybe it's crossed groups of kids come together, they have circle meetings, they constantly go back, rebuild trust, work through problems that they're experiencing, and learn how to build those social skills and norms of truly listening in dialogue to understand one another right. and everyone else's experiences.
That's just a little taste. I could go yeah. way, way deeper. But oh, I, feel you, like... you, I, I know you could. And I think you're right, though. <laughs> I mean, the, the hard part, of course, is trying to imagine the steps along the way. How do we get, mm -hmm. for example, how do we get yeah. teachers, teachers feeling comfortable yeah. with a more ambiguous kind of job assignment and, and you know, all of those things that that yeah. would take some detail. But, you know, I think that you're onto something in terms of, uh, you know, the idea of, of the learner being at the center of the experience mm -hmm. and, and trying to change the constant, right? So right now, yeah. time is that constant. And we, you know, a lot of us use the expression when time is the constant learning will vary. When, mm -hmm. when learning is the constant, then time will vary. And, and mm -hmm. because of that, you can start to, to reimagine. Now, speaking of, of reimagine, yeah. you touched on this a little bit, and I wanted to pick up on that. You, you talked about assessment and, and your conversation with those grade 12 students. So, so let's pick up on that. I happen to know that you obviously have a passion for assessment. You have a, a level of expertise in assessment, I would say. So so what are, when you think about assessment itself, um, and I think, again, you touched on this a little bit with standardization, um, what are some current assessment and grading paradigms that you feel need to be reimagined? Oh, man. I feel like that whole vision that I just described yeah. completely hinges on the assessment system. Okay. So if you had a traditional assessment system, none of all of that that I just described is possible. Right. So basically everything has to be reimagined. And I think one of the first places we can start is uh, blowing wide open the idea of how we gather evidence of learning. Mm -hmm. I think there's a bit of a traditional allegiance to like the test, the quiz, those are more, you know, objective. And if instead we opened it up and said, okay, well, we're looking for these more holistic learning attributes as the outcome. We're now not looking at the content as the outcome. That's variable because that's based on preference and choice. Right. So we could look at, it's endless. Like it could be a podcast. It could be a TikTok. I tweeted something mm -hmm. last night where I'm like, you know, what's really hard describing a complex concept in 60 seconds. Luckily, TikTok right. is a 60 second video platform. Why not use that? So I think blowing open uh, how we gather evidence, expanding our repertoire of evidence. Mm -hmm. And another piece is because there's always a purpose for summative judgment. We have to report back to parents at thus, thus far, how are we doing? But I think mm -hmm. empowering students in that process, I'm super excited about things I'm seeing on that front. So right. allowing them at the end of a project to co-create that summative judgment through dialogue, that's so mm -hmm. important with a teacher and with their peers would be really powerful. Um, I'd love to see self-assessment explored a little bit more. From my mm -hmm. experience, people still approach it as uh, just recruiting students to mark their work once right. in a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've done a deep dive over the past couple of years into self-regulated learning. Mm -hmm. And I think we all need a better understanding of what that means and how to align assessment opportunities at each yeah. phase of the cycle. Because as you know, it's yeah. a three-phase cycle. Yeah. You've got planning, you've got monitoring, you've got reflecting, and we're missing mm -hmm. out those first two often, the planning and the monitoring. And yeah. being in a special ed context, that's everything. We have to chunk everything down to the, the smallest point and then check for understanding, even at the beginning, do we understand what the task is? Let's all get that straight first. Right, and right, I would love right. to see others adopt that mindset. And yeah. just feedback, feedback. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about this before. I feel like yeah. that is something that it's widely, I'm doing air quotes, understood. Yeah. It's something that I see on uh, social media a lot, like shown as an infographic or a quick little checklist. You know, it's timely, it's actionable, it's specific. And everyone's like, ah, yes. And what I see missing often is the understanding between both people, the teacher and the student, and you can only get there through dialogue. Yeah. So I would love to see feedback as more of like a mentorship opportunity, as a coaching right. opportunity, as a mm -hmm. 
me and you sitting down and hopefully I'm asking more questions than I am telling and you're able to end it, right. what your next steps are yourself. Yeah. Well, and, you're, uh, you're, you're speaking my language Nat, because, uh, you know, when Cassandra and Nicole and I wrote essential assessment, we talk about student investment occurs when the self-regulation of learning and assessment have a symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the assessment cycle can feed the opportunity for students to be self-regulatory about their learning. And as a result of, of helping students become more self-regulatory, the assessment results start to show. So you start to see students improve in their learning, right? And, exactly. and feedback as well, the, the important part. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we definitely will, will have to continue our mm -hmm. assessment exploration uh, maybe in an episode to come. But I want to sure. finish, I want to take a bit of a tangent here because you recently <laughs> tweeted something. So I'm going to give you a bit of a platform here, Nat, because you, you tweeted something that caught my attention. And I thought, uh, I, when I saw the tweet, I thought, I want to ask Natalie more about that. And then I thought, well, I'm going to have her on the podcast. So I might as well ask her <laughs> uh -oh. on the podcast. So um, I think it was a, about a week ago, or maybe a few days ago, you, you, you tweeted this, you said, quote, the more powerful, successful and happy a man becomes, the more people trust him. The more powerful, successful and happy a woman becomes, the less people trust her. Of all the things this culture has taught me, I most want to unlearn this, end quote. So Natalie, can Ooh. you unpack that for us? Oh, yes. There's so much to unpack there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a pivot. Okay, let's go there. Um, so I feel like I have to tell you a bit of the story behind how this kind of the tweet came to be, because I use my Twitter okay. truly as like my little idea dumping ground. I don't always have things totally flushed out, but mm -hmm. I'll have this spark of an idea and I'll leave it there so that I could go back in the future and hopefully turn it into a piece of writing. And I was reading two books at the same time, which I don't often do, but I was. One of them was Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And the other book is Think Again by Adam Grant. And as I was reading both of those parallel, this tweet popped into my brain because Glennon Doyle's book is a memoir. And it's very much a feminist memoir because she left her marriage after her husband had cheated on her. She discovered, you know, realized she's a lesbian and, you know, ended up in this very public relationship with a famous soccer player. And so it's her negotiating all of that and all of her addictions and her health issues and realizing how much was conditioned from the society that she was living in. And she talks a lot about, you know, the lack of trust that you feel as a woman. So that's where that part came from. Okay. And then I'm reading Adam Grant's Think Again, which is about unlearning and the idea that we all have all these unconscious biases in our brain that we're just going through the world with that aren't serving us. And we have to actively rethink. And those two things came together for me because what I understand of systems of oppression, and we all know, you know, we're living in a patriarchal system. It's no surprise to anybody. It's the history that we have brought along with us from the past. And though it's not as overt, just like racism, sexism has just mutated and evolved. So it's a little bit more nuanced than maybe it was in the 1950s. And my understanding of these systems is that there's four levels of oppression. There is the ideology, there is then the institutional level of oppression, then the interpersonal, and then the internalized. And the internalized is the part that uh, has been plaguing me and keeping me up at night a little bit hmm. because I often feel like I want to go big and I want to fight the ideas and I want to fight the man. And usually that just ends up poorly for me. And so then I've been checking myself on the thoughts that I'm telling myself, like, especially as I've moved out of the classroom, that was a, that's a big shift for a teacher. Anyone who's done it, it's people look at you a little bit different. The, the hmm. trust is just a little bit different. 
Um, trying to have a platform around something like assessment, which is already such an emotionally laden topic is hard. And then you feel like as a woman, is it harder because I'm a woman or, and then you wonder if it's those thoughts that are actually causing you to feel that way. Cause I'm thinking they don't trust me. If Tom comes to talk to my school, you know, being a middle-aged white man, he's going to be better received than I am as a younger white woman. Is that me coming up with that? Is that this is like our society conditioning me to feel that way? So I think that's where that tweet came from. Is it something that just really plagues me? And Mm -hmm. I wish I could condition my own brain to be more confident and get rid of the imposter syndrome sometimes. (laughs) Well, listeners, I I hope you recognize now why uh, Natalie is on the podcast, uh, why I've invited her here, uh, her podcast her work in education, and she is simply a deep thinker. And uh, I really, really appreciate hearing from you. And your your tweets often catch my attention. And I want to know more about the story behind many of your tweets. And that's why that one caught my attention. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of explore that. So I, I appreciate that, Natalie. It's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a vulnerable place to be too, when you express yourself in that way. And mm-hmm. I certainly appreciate that. Uh, so this is a good time to maybe pivot to something a little lighter uh, to, to have some fun here a little bit. As, as you know, I finish every interview with a segment called three questions where I ask just some fun questions that, give people a chance to get, although I feel like people got to know you quite well in this interview. Uh, we're going to get to know the, 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 the other side of Nat, the, you know, the fun side. We're going to ask three lighthearted questions. And of course, I've got one more question at the end. So here's the first question. Uh, what is the one superpower that you would most want to have? Oh, gosh. Superpower. Ugh. Take it wherever you want. Okay. I feel like I wish I could hack the like chemical makeup of my brain to just always be firing dopamine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I never expect, I thought maybe like I would fly like, you know, Superman. Yeah, I know. I went there and I was like, no, that's too obvious. Don't say fly. (laughs) Just like constant dopamine brain girl. There you go. I like that idea. That's good. (laughs) Now, obviously during a second question, obviously, uh, you know, Listen, during COVID, we we could all use a vacation right now. So if you could travel to anywhere in the world right now for, for a two-week oh. vacation, money, no object. So we're not limited by budget oh, here. Where would you go? I've never been to Europe. And it's like shocking. I'm Italian. My dad was born in Italy. I would go to Europe for two weeks and like do it all. I'd want to see like all the major cities and walk around yeah. and meet people and talk to people and just be around people again. <laughs> That's oh, okay. But in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. In Europe, you'd, you'd head to Europe. Okay. Yeah. That's good. All right. Uh, question three. What is for you one of the most overrated movies of all time? <laughs> uh oh. Um, oh, man. Overrated. I've only seen it once. Every man listening to this podcast episode, Tom, is about to hate me if I say this, but it's what I truly believe. <laughs> and you asked it. me a feminist question, and now I'm all fired go. up. There you go. Scar- it's Scarface. I'm sorry. I really don't. <laughs> right? right? I'm like, there's not a single guy that isn't like, oh, Loma Del, you Loma. Like, I can't even try to do it. But I feel like I hear the accent constantly from guys, and I've watched it a few times, and I'm like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> say, say hello to my little friend. That's yes, it. That, that's yeah. the quote. Um, yes, yes. Um, okay. Well, you're, you're, you're allowed to your just, opinion. For and me, half of them gone. <laughs> that's right. 
interview over. Thanks for coming, Nat. No, yeah, um, <laughs> for, for me, for me, it's uh, Howard's End, 1992. It on paper, it checks all the boxes. Anthony Hopkins, Vanessa Redgrave, uh, Emma Thompson. I think it had somewhere around eight to ten uh, Academy Award nominations. Uh-huh. Emma Thompson won Best Actress. Howard's End. I've never even heard of it. <laughs> I fell. As- I fell asleep. I okay, fell asleep. Well, that's probably why. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I did not enjoy it. Totally overrated uh, to me. Uh, 1992. So that would have been a little before your time, right? Oh, okay. In terms of <laughs> I movie, was alive. In term, in term, yes, I know that. But in terms yeah, of no, I was probably watching movie, Care Bears for sure. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, all right. So one final question, uh, Natalie, uh, I've asked this of everyone I've interviewed. Um, and really, it's a theme running through the podcast about success and happiness. So interested in your perspective uh, on the mm-hmm. question of success. So if a random person stopped you on the street right now and asked you the question, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Well, first of all, I have to say, this is a great question to ask everybody, because as someone who was just part of a strategic planning task force, um, so a massive community of parents, students, teachers answering the question about where are we trying to get with our school? What does success look like? Everybody okay. answers this question so different. They do, <laughs> so can, they do. I can see why you uh, why you ask it. Yeah. Um, like I said, educator father, I feel like full circle, let's just bring Papa Mo back into the mix here. Uh <laughs> He, the first book he ever bought me, and he's not really much of a reader, so this is a big deal for him, was The Element by Sir, the late Sir Ken Robinson. And that stuck with me very, very early on, this concept of finding your element. So that unique place where passion and aptitude align. And for me, that is like the heart of success. If you can find what that element is, you just completely come alive. You feel energized. And when you feel good, you naturally want to make other people feel good and you want to support them and help them. It's like the idea of putting your oxygen mask on first, right? So for me, definition of success would be living in your element. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So many, so many times I I love the idea of in your element and therefore for others, you can, you can bring Mm -hmm. a kind of a positivity and success and and influence other people. I love that. Uh, we, we are definitely going to have to do this again. I, I really enjoyed uh, our, our time together, Nat. Listeners, you can definitely, mm-hmm. you definitely should follow Natalie on Twitter. Her uh, Twitter handle is at Nat Abasso. So it's <laughs> N-A-T-A-B-A-S-S-O. You follow her on Twitter. Uh, you can also follow the at EduCrush pod. That's on Twitter and also on Instagram. You can follow mm-hmm. both of those as well. And also the website, uh, www.educrush.com. Uh, com is the website for the podcast. Natalie, any other platforms to share? Nope. I'm mostly nope, on Twitter. As mostly Tom Twitter. pointed out, I tweet a lot. So <laughs> absolutely. You can find absolutely. Me there. <laughs> and definitely, definitely uh, a good follow. You, you definitely put out some thoughtful tweets that uh, get me thinking and get others thinking for sure. And I see some of the responses to that. So Natalie, this was yeah. uh, a lot of fun today. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Tom. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk a little bit about assessment purpose. Now, this past week, I found myself continually going back to purpose in so many of the Zoom trainings that I was conducting. I kept answering questions, you know, well, what was the purpose of the assessment? Or, I know it depends on the purpose of the assessment. So it really was front and center for so many of the uh, online trainings I was doing. Now, purpose, in many ways, is a first among equals when it comes to the essential assessment tenants, because it does set the stage for so many subsequent decisions. 
it's also something that I think gets overlooked a little bit as formative and summative assessment have been part of the collective conversation for more than 20 years, especially after that resurgence in assessment practices, late 90s, early 2000s. So in advance of any assessment moment, however small, medium, or large that moment might be, the singular question that must be answered is why? Why do you want this information? In other words, what do you intend to do with it? And that will have a ripple effect with every other aspect of assessment. So let's just say you answered that question why by saying, I want to take inventory on where my students are so I can figure out uh, what's next for them uh, as learners so they can keep growing along their learning trajectory and deepen their understanding. So clearly, you've just described the formative purpose. So again, what is the ripple effect to that? Well, from an assessment architecture perspective, design, you're, you're likely to design an assessment uh, that allows for a more granular examination of the evidence. If, if you had thought your purpose to be more summative, you might take a more holistic overall view. But here, with describing the formative purpose, you're going to need more details. As far as interpreting the uh, evidence, you know, interpretation of that evidence, it's the same idea. If, if your purpose is formative, now you're going to make sure that your, your criteria is more conducive to that purpose. So an analytic or a single point rubric would be a better choice because it does allow for that personalized or granular feedback. As far as instructional agility is concerned, again, your purpose will drive the specificity of decisions. The more details you have, the more granular your adjustments can be, both individually and collectively as a group. Now, communicating the assessment results, of course, that's feedback. And if feedback is emphasized, of course, during the formative purpose, uh, we've talked a ton about that in, in previous podcasts, but we're going to focus on learning, not the task, but we're going to focus on impacting their long-term learning. And our feedback is going to be descriptive about what comes next for the learner. And then as far as student, uh, student investment is concerned, a formative purpose would intentionally bring students inside the process to determine the details of what's next for themselves. Um, you know, might be preceded by some goal setting or task analysis, you know, thinking about the self-regulatory uh, process of learning, you know, the forethought phase, the performance phase, the self-reflection phase, all of those aspects of being self-regulatory about your learning. Your, your learning. So when it comes to purpose, we really are impacting, and as I've talked before, when it comes to, you know, the essential assessment tenets that Cassandra, Nicole, and I talk a lot about, each one of them sort of impacts the other five. So when we think about purpose, it will affect your assessment architecture, your interpretation of the evidence, being instructionally agile, communicating assessment results, and student investment. So obviously that was a very quick synopsis, um, but, but all of those are driven by purpose. Even homework, right? We talked about homework uh, before. What's the purpose of the homework? If it's a performance task, what is the purpose? Uh, purpose will ultimately, in almost every case, decide you know what stuff gets graded, scored, marked, leveled, and what stuff prior is prioritized uh, by feedback. So again, feedback is always desirable, regardless of your purpose, right? But it really does come down to priorities and points of emphasis. So it's not that you can't give feedback at summative moments, but it's whether or not that feedback is coming at a time where students can actually act upon that feedback. So feedback on summative assessments, if you will, is fine as long as the students have time to act upon it. Okay, so remember the, the key here is that labeling something formative does not make it so. 
okay? An assessment is only formative when it's used formatively. So it's about the action. It's, a, it's about, you know, taking subsequent action as a result of gathering the evidence. So now having said all of that, sometimes the declaration of purpose may not even be necessary. So this is going to sound like a bit of a contradiction, but it really isn't. So just hear me out on this and you'll, you'll kind of see where this is going. When you're assessing at the target or the underpinning level, that evidence should be exclusively about the formative purpose, right? For me, uh, just to clarify terminology, uh, a target or an underpinning is a part of the standard, but it's not the entire standard itself. It's an ingredient, but it's not the meal, right? So squares and square roots, for example, is a part of being able to find the third side of a right triangle using the Pythagorean formula. Definitions of, for example, capitalism, communism, socialism, etc., those are a part, but not entirely, uh, you know, about my ability to analyze the political tension, for example, of the 20th century. I'd have to know what those terms mean, but that's just one ingredient. Uh, the meal is doing that deeper analysis. Um, I can identify 10 common, you know, or 12 or whatever uh, literary devices, that's fine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I've produced a narrative with an intricate plot or interesting characters or something like that, right? So I can have two cups of flour, but I don't have chocolate chip cookies. I need the flour, but there are more ingredients necessary to make the meal. So when I think of targets and underpinnings, I think of the ingredients. When I think of standards or outcomes, I think of the, or competencies, I think of the meal. So when students are not demonstrating the full extent of the standard, the full depth and breadth of the standard, then formatively using the emerging evidence seems to be the only option really. Otherwise, to allow students to accrue partial credit for meeting the standard when they haven't actually performed the totality of the standard would seem to be the opposite of rigor, right? So here we get a little bit picky, but for me, partially meeting the standard is not demonstrating part of the standard. Like we would never say, well, at least you have eggs and flour, so I'm going to give you partial credit for making cookies. That's the difference between a learning progression and a rubric. And we've talked about this before uh, a while back when I talked about rubrics in the fall. They get Students will get partial credit for meeting the standard when they demonstrate the totality of the standards at a partial level. In other words, they still have to make the cookies. Okay, Then we might decide, based on our criteria that their cookies are partial or developing or whatever labels we've used on our, on our rubrics. It's the demonstrations that are leveled. The learning progressions are not leveled, so to speak, as far as the scoring is concerned. That's about increasing cognitive complexity. Learning progressions are not rubrics and grading scales. And grading scales and rubrics are not learning progressions. Okay, now, Here's where it's going to sound like a little bit of a contradiction, but I assure you that it's not. When assessing at the standard level, you know, the full depth and breadth of the learning goal, if they're making the cookies, then just assess. There really isn't a need to pre-label the purpose. Now, of course, you'll have a purpose in mind, but you can be a little bit more nimble with it. Right? And we talked about this when discussing reassessment back in the fall as well. So let's go through a couple of scenarios and, and sort of see how this can play out. So let's assume the assessment itself is well-designed with uh, an adequate sample. 
Okay, so we've got we've got enough questions, we've got enough evidence, we're we're good to go. So the first scenario is where a teacher is going to assess at the standard level, but pre-labels that experience formative, right? So the purpose would be to use it for feedback. And then we're going to have, subsequent to the feedback, we're going to have another assessment and that's going to be used summatively. Okay, so in the first instance, for example, you'd have a, a teacher who has 30 assessments, 30 students in the class, just, just keep it an easy round number, 30 students in the class, they all take the assessment, teacher provides feedback, maybe there's some peer assessment going on, maybe there's some self-assessment going on, those, those details not really important for this description. There's some feedback, some growing, Two days later, three days later, et cetera, we have another assessment and the teacher goes through those again. Okay, so that's 30 the first time, 30 the second time, and that's 60 in total. Now, what if the teacher decided that they were gonna try a different sequence? And rather than pre-labeling something formative, they just assessed the standard. So there's 30 assessments. For those students who show competence, proficiency, et cetera, they're at the sort of proficient, competent level with the standard, then they use that evidence summatively to verify the degree to which the student has met the learning goals. Now, for those students who have not met it, if they are falling short of the expectation, we use that very same evidence formatively provide feedback, provide more learning opportunities. And again, there's nothing stopping you from doing that with the first group as well, but this would be more essential for those who have fallen short and therefore you would reassess days later. Now, hypothetically, you could have a scenario where 30 students you know, take the first assessment and you gather the evidence on those 30 students and let's just say 15 of them you know, meet the, the, the goal at either a competent or an exemplary level. And let's just say none of them sort of choose the reassessment route. Maybe they just want to go um, extend in a different area, whatever. But 15 require the reassessment, right? So that's 30 the first time, 15 the second time, and now you have 45 instead of 60. Now, there are a tremendous number of details that have to be, you know, asked and all of that. I don't, I don't want to get into the minutia of that. But I just want you to see that when you're assessing at the standard level, at the competency level, at the full depth and breadth of the outcome level, when you're doing that, then there is no need to pre-label it. You might have an idea in mind that this is a formative practice, but summative isn't always an event, okay? So you can have this opportunity to reduce the workload but it really doesn't come at the expense of the student experience, right? It actually, in some ways, could be an enhancement, right? Because so they might be thinking to themselves, like, why do I have to do this again? Just because you labeled it formative, right? Because, like I said earlier, summative isn't always an event. It, it can be a moment where a teacher looks at the preponderance of evidence and makes a holistic determination about the degree to which the student has met the learning goal, right? But in the case where summative is an event, then keep this in mind when you're at that standard level because you need not just repeat things because you pre-labeled them formative. You know, for example, this might actually help you with students who ask the question, is this a formative or a summative assessment, Mr. Shimmer? And my answer to that could be, well, it depends. You know, if you show me you're proficient and, you know, you show me that you've reached the level of learning that we're, we're targeting right now, then we're good. And if you fall short of that, then we're going to keep learning and make sure you get there. You may, in fact, by doing that, deter some of what I call the preview students, right? The students who try to get an advanced version 
uh, or I should say an advanced view of the first version of the assessment uh, before thinking about, okay, now I know what's on it. Now I'll be ready for the reassessment. Because what they'll start to see is that it's actually less work to get it right the first time. I'm not saying this will be a silver bullet or anything like that. And I'm not saying that's going to solve all of those issues. But I do think it can really help in terms of saying, look, prove to me that you've reached the learning goal and we're good. If you still need to do more learning, I'm happy to facilitate that. You invest in that learning and we create that social contract and, and we dig in and, and you reassess uh, you know, a few days later or next week or whatever. So even in the scenarios that I presented to you, you can say to the students that the intent is practice unless you show me you've got it, right? So you could still tell them it is formative unless you prove that you've learned it and then we can use that summatively. So that that could be a way to create a kind of different environment. But, but you can see how having that purpose in mind can be really helpful in shaping so many of the decisions we make throughout the assessment cycle, right? The way we, the way purpose works is that once you know your assessment purpose, it helps all of those decisions fall into place more seamlessly. A few announcements as we finish up today. First, a reminder about the Achieve Institute. That's the institute focused on promising practices and in instruction, assessment, and grading. That's going to be this August 16th through 18th. That virtual event will feature myself, Cassandra Erkins, Nicole Dimich, and Katie White. So if you are interested in that event, please head over to the solutiontree.com website for details. I've also added uh, links to that event in the show notes, of course. Uh, second, I want to talk about the summer series very quickly. Uh, the survey is now closed, so thank you to all of you who've contributed to the survey. I'm going to put together the topics over the next few weeks and uh, probably announce the topics over Twitter, but I really do appreciate your input, and I think we're going to it's shaping up to be some great topics that we're going to explore this summer, so stay tuned for that. And last, uh, this coming Tuesday, so tomorrow night, uh, May the 4th at 9 o'clock Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific Time, I'm going to be moderating the All Things Assessment Twitter chat. You can find that. Uh, so if you're on Twitter, you can find that at hashtag ATAssessment. We host that chat every other Tuesday. So if you can't make it tomorrow night on the 4th, then maybe you can join us in a couple of weeks on the 18th. It really is a great way to connect with so many of our Solution Tree Assessment Center team um, and, and also many professionals from around the world who just love to join in and talk about assessment uh, every other Tuesday. Got to give a special shout out to Katie White, Mandy Stolitz, Anissa Baker-Busby, and Ken Mattingly, who really do uh, drive that chat every week. I, I'm moderating tomorrow night, but they really are the engine that, that drives that chat on a you know every other week basis. So remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Tom Shimmer. Uh, Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. And don't forget about the YouTube channel as well. Um, just posted the video interview with Alexa Schmidt uh, from back in March. So that's posted now on the YouTube channel as well. Uh, you can also, of course, email your questions for Assessment Corner or any other suggestions you have uh, about the podcast to tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Yvette Jackson. She is the author of the book, The Pedagogy of Confidence. I have to tell you, I am a huge fan of her and her work, so I cannot wait for that conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like the podcast, uh, please spread the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues. I would greatly appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 